0: Hello and welcome to another episode of the Tech.EU podcast. I'm Roxanne Varza and I'm here with Tech.EU editor Robin Waters. Hi, Robin. Hey, Roxanne. Hey, everyone. So this week, we will discuss Austria's new $204 million startup program. We'll take a look at German startup Persanio, who has just secured funding. We'll discuss Russian services startup Udo that has announced a Series C round of funding. Robin, you had a chance to catch up with Mark Toulouse from Mangrove Capital Partners, so we'll listen to that. And finally, the EU is hitting Google with yet another antitrust lawsuit, so we will wrap the podcast up with that. So let's jump right in. It isn't every week that we discuss Austria on the show, uh, but similarly to a lot of other European countries, Austria's federal government is launching a startup program. Quick, Robin, can you name an Austrian startup? Actually, I'm not even sure that I can really name one. I recently found out about apparently the biggest acquisition in Austrian startup history, which was the Adidas acquisition of RunTastic for 240 million last year. I actually didn't even realize they were Austrian.
1: They are, yes. And I was actually going to say uh, Runtastic because that's the only one I know. Well, uh, unless if you want to count Pioneers as well, because you know, most people know the Pioneers Festival, um, which I guess you can also call a startup. But Runtastic is an interesting one. Uh, we profiled them last year before the acquisition happened. They actually come from a very small town in Austria. And they're not even from Vienna. They're from this town called Pasching, which is near Linz. So, you know, the whole cliche of you can build a great company from anywhere, uh, it really applies to Runtastic. I mean the successful exit that they've had. Um, they've actually had two. They were sold to Axel Springer or a majority stake at least before they sold to Adidas. So, um, so that's an interesting, interesting Austrian startup. But I can't really name any others to be, to be very honest.
0: Yeah, I think that's definitely one that people should keep in mind when they talk about the Austrian ecosystem. Neil and I actually covered Austria not too long ago on the podcast when we discussed Austrian fund Speed Invest was investing in a Croatian company. But back to the topic, this three-year program has a budget of over $200 million, aims to facilitate early-stage funding, I guess, through seed funds, business angel clubs, investor incentives, and more. They have startup fellowships. They have alleviated wage costs for startups, startup visas, and more. It actually is very similar to a lot of measures put forward by other countries. It reminds me a lot of Tech City in the U.K., La French Tech in France, Startup Portugal, which we covered on the show a while back. This program should be launching in January of next year. And it seems that Austria is geographically well-positioned in as a central part in kind of the Vienna-Bratislava-Prague triangle. Uh, didn't even actually realize that there was like a tech triangle going on there. That's really interesting. And um, also the Austrian government seems keen on attracting Asian startups and startups from Eastern Europe. What's interesting also is that TechCrunch published a very comprehensive article on the Austrian startup ecosystem kind of in honor of this program. And I have to say I'm really thrilled to see yet another European government trying to support their local ecosystem.
1: Yeah, for sure. Um, I would like if people really want to know more about Austria. I would really recommend to read the TechCrunch article. Um, you can argue a lot about the quality of the guest post sometimes on there, but that one was a really good one. Um, I was quoted in it um, somewhat negatively, saying that you know if you're in Austria and you really want to scale up the company, then, then it might make more sense for you to move to a, a more mature hub um, for the time being, uh, as the you know the local ecosystem is still very much in development. Um, but I think what the government is doing here is is, is really interesting
0: Yeah, what actually always surprises me is that these countries all seem to be kind of replicating the same measures more or less. They're providing funding, kind of administrative support, visa support. It's just like, why isn't there a European blueprint for this? Why aren't all the countries collaborating more and sharing key learnings? That's the only thing I can say that maybe somewhat is critical about this uh, new program they've announced.
1: Yeah, that's a, that's a really good point, And that's something that's been discussed over and over again. Um, but listen, you've already mentioned that it's sort of similar to other programs that we've seen. Um, so you can argue that the first one who starts doing this program, um, which you can argue was Tech City uh, UK uh, over in London, sort of already provided a blueprint. But the reality with Europe is, and we've seen this over and over again um, on many occasions, is that it's so fragmented on a regulation level, on a cultural level, on a linguistic level um so it's very very hard to provide a blueprint that works for everyone everywhere all the time so that's the reason that we have these you know sort of similar uh, programs that kind of adapt to the local labor laws, for example, or regulatory frameworks, um, which you kind of have to do. You can't just take what City is doing in the UK and apply it to Austria, Portugal, Belgium, or, or anywhere else. Um, you have to take into account local legislation, of course, but also local support mechanisms that are already in place. Um, you don't have to start these things from scratch. You can use what's already there and kind of build upon it as a foundation, which is the reason that I think a blueprint does doesn't necessarily work, um, rather than the more like a good example and then taking the best uh, of a program that works elsewhere. And putting some finishing touches on it that work in the local ecosystem, which I think is what Asher is doing here. But you're absolutely right. Um, I think countries should collaborate more and share key learnings and, and and best practices when it comes to these these kind of things. I think there are organizations popping up that are trying to do that. And um, one is the European Startups Network, that's still very very young. But I think that's one of the goals that they have is sort of combine all of these these best practices and key learnings uh, into one central database.
0: Robin, I vote for you as our next VP of digital for Europe. <laughs> who do you think actually will be the next country, or do you have an idea of who will be the next country to put forward a program like this?
1: I have no idea, and I didn't expect Austria to be to be the, the next one either, so so I'm a very bad person to ask that question to. But I think, listen, if, if you're Austria, you're a small country per definition, in terms of population at least. Um, you have talent, you have resources available to you, But you're never going to be the biggest startup hub in Europe. Simply, it's a law of numbers, right? So you have to do something. And, and, and I think what they're doing here is really good. Um, not just focusing only on, on getting funding or capital in pumped into the ecosystem, but also um, on the talent point, you know, with the startup visa attracting foreign talent, but also making it easier for founders to set up their, their companies and, and maybe making it more interesting for angel investors to do investments with, you know, tax uh, exemptions and whatnot. Um, so I think that's absolutely the way that they should be approaching this as a, one of the smaller countries in the in the European tech scene. So, so I hope to see many more like this.
0: Yeah, and I really hope that we're going to start covering Austria a lot more on the podcast as a result of this program as well. Now, German startup Personio started getting a lot of attention this past week when it announced a 2.1 million euro round of funding. But before we go into Persanio's kind of story, Robin, you were in Germany for Tech Open Air. Can you give the listeners a little overview of the event?
1: Sure. I'll be quick. Um, TOA happens every year in the summer in Berlin. They try to combine you know, your typical conference with a little bit of a festival vibe. So a lot of a uh, the happenings there, including some of the conference talks, are, are outdoors, which this week was actually not the best of ideas because the weather in Berlin is quite bad. So lots of rain and then lots of um, cloudy weather and then coldness. So So that wasn't ideal for them, um, but it was still a really good conference. Um, It's always a really good atmosphere. Um, It's quite relaxed. So so people go there to um, not only learn, but also to to relax and chill and to network, um, which made it really good. Um, It was in in a different location than last year. You also... Saw that Toa raised funding. I think it was discussed on the last podcast. Um, Tech Open Air raised funding uh, from some local um, Berlin startup folks. So, so I'm guessing it's only going to grow, and they're go- they're going to new markets as well. They're starting a conference in LA. So, so I think what works in Berlin, uh, we'll see if it works elsewhere, um, including LA. That remains to be seen. But in Berlin, this conference works really well. Like it really, you know, fits the the, the vibe of the city really well. And I hope to continue going there for many years to come.
0: And I think uh, you were there with your five-year-old son, just wondering how was it for a younger participant, <laughs> did you like
1: the conference? Yeah, so I do part of the family, which, you know, you, you wouldn't do that with any conference. But this one lends itself really well to it because it's outdoors. I mean, we took a boat shuttle to the conference uh, from the city center, which, you know, not a lot of conferences can, can, can offer that kind of service. But he had a really good time. He tried virtual reality goggles for the first time, and it kind of blew him away uh, in the same way that it would in adults. Um, but yeah, he had a lot of fun.
0: Great, so now back to Persanio. The Munich-based startup develops an HR management and recruitment platform they have raised funding essentially with Global Founders Capital, which is the Samware Brothers Fund, Pickus Capital, and the founders of Stylite and a handful of other angel investors. So this is actually the first time, and obviously everybody's heard about Global Founders Capital. I had never heard about Pickus Capital. I think they must be a new fund. I don't seem to see anything, not even a website for them online.
1: Yes, I'll, I'll admit I'd never heard of Pickus Capital either. I'd never heard of Persanio either, So, so that's all on me. But yeah, but it also means that if if we can't even keep track of all the new funds and all the new startups popping up all over the place, that's actually a good sign, right?
0: Yeah, I agree with you on that. personio actually, which was founded back in 2015, so relatively recent company, if we haven't heard about it, not a huge deal, but they were bootstrapped until now. They currently employ 10 people. They count 100 customers using the SaaS application to handle things like payroll and recruitment. Funding should help the company continue its development in Germany, but it also apparently has its eye on the UK market, where it would compete with the likes of Bamboo HR, HiBob, or Namely. The company actually says the funding isn't specifically for internationalization, but they are looking at becoming a key player in the European market before U.S. rivals cross the Atlantic.
1: Yeah, interesting space. I mean, the HR tech vertical in general, I think is interesting on a global level. It will never be the biggest vertical in Europe when it comes to funding our M&A activity, I think. Um, but it's still like it's an industry that's really still ripe for disruption, in my opinion. You hear that from, from both HR professionals and people um, that have been recruited to these online tools and platforms. Um, there's a lot of you know, innovation that still have to be done. Um, It still feels sometimes like it's still uh, the the middle ages for for HR tech, uh, especially in big corporations. So there's a lot to be done. Uh, Small businesses have a need for this kind of software per definition. So it's not a luxury product for them. They need something like this. So I'm not surprised that these startups keep popping up and raising funding. It's a little weird that they say that they're not going to internationalize because that's, you know, it seems like the typical, you know, almost not ambitious enough um, startup in a way. But yeah, they're young. They've just raised funding. so, So that might change. But you mentioned uh, a few competitors there. I think Hybop is one of the most interesting ones, um, not only because they just uh, also announced funding, because the team behind it is really interesting. So it's an Israeli-UK uh, startup that is trying to, to corner this market in Europe um, completely when it comes to small business HR software. So so that's also very interesting to watch. And it will be interesting to watch if Personio kind of you know steps into the race and becomes a player as well.
0: Yeah, and with the Samwares behind it, I think we can expect to hear about them again. <laughs> So now, uh, Russian-based Udo has secured a $6.2 million Series C round. We don't get to cover a lot of Russian startups on the podcast, so I'm, I'm really excited about this. The Moscow-based startup is an online marketplace for contractors and is now planning expansion to Europe, the U.S., and Asia, so super ambitious. With regards to Europe, the company is specifically looking at the U.K., Germany, Poland, and Spain, which is totally not the list of countries—I mean, it starts out as kind Kind of a list of countries I'd expect, and then it totally goes off. It's a really interesting expansion tactic. And I think uh, alongside these markets, they're looking at Asian speaking, uh, English speaking Asian countries and the US, which should follow. Um, this round of funding was raised with Sistema Venture Capital. And historical investors Sergey Solonin, who's Kiwi's CEO, Flint Capital, and United Capital Partners. So both Sistema and United Capital are very kind of Russian-based funds, but Flint Capital is super international. They cover the U.S., Russia, and Israel, and they've done some pretty cool investments like Lending Club and AnyDo. So this company, Udo, founded in 2012, had actually previously raised a one million Series A in 2013 and an undisclosed Series B round.
1: Um, So the interesting thing about this, I think, is uh, you're right, so we don't talk a lot about Russian startups, and the the reason for that I think is because a lot of these Russian startups operate in in a market that's very large, Um, so if they can become big domestically, they can already be a billion-dollar company um, as a figure of speech. I mean, sometimes um, it, it doesn't have to be that kind of valuation at all. But they they can, they can become really big companies inside Russia without us ever hearing about them, right? In this case, it's a little different. Um, and, and also in, in, in contrast with the uh, Personia one that we just talked about. Um, these guys seem to be very ambitious. Um, they just raised 6 million, which, you know, as a Series C round is actually on the low end, I would say. But they, they seem to be very ambitious when it comes to geographical expansion. Um, so they want to attack a, a lot of these markets at the same time, which I think is very refreshing to see. Um, we'll see if they can pull it off. The model is not new at all. Uh, I mean, this is the sort of online model model. That we've seen over and over again for the last fifteen years, I think I would wager you know finding contractors online and doing matchmaking and sort of you know um doing online bids for contract work uh, is super super easy to do um so it's not a very hard problem to tackle. The hard thing to do is to do it on an international scale, so uh, we'll see if uh, you do um, can pull that off. Um, you mentioned Flint Capital as one of their investors and very correctly uh, mentioned that they're also making a name for themselves um, on the on the global level, um, making really, really um, smart investments. So, so the fact that they're behind this sort of uh, reassures me that Udo might do fine. So we'll see.
0: Yeah, definitely keep an eye out on Udo. Now, Robin, you had a chance to catch up with Mark Toulouse from Mangrove Capital. So let's take a listen to that.
1: Hey, this is Robin from TechU. I'm here at the Europas in
2: London. I'm here with Mark Toulouse from Mangrove. What's Mangrove? Mangrove is an early-stage investor, and we like to consider ourselves the greatest cheerleader a startup will ever have.
1: Where are you based? How big is the fund? How many partners? Give me the basics.
2: Five partners, 600 million under management, based in Luxembourg.
1: What do you typically invest in in terms of verticals and geographies, or is
2: it all over the place? 30% of our money flows to Israel, 70% to Europe. It's Anything that's internet and weird gets our attention. Skype put you on the map. I think it's fair to say. Which other investments in your portfolio do you want to mention now? Yeah, Name five. Sure. So Skype put us on the map. Wix made us tons more money. <laughs> and of course, now we're investors in Lezara, Outfittery, Job Today, and about 25 other companies around Europe.
1: So what do you look for when you invest in companies? Obviously, you're early stage investors, so a lot of it's about the team. Uh, but you also look at certain um, industries that they're, you're particularly interested in
2: yeah. or, or markets. Yeah, we, we, we like to think about big industries where there's a lot of fat that we can go after, right? That's true about telecom, it's true about website building, it's true about financial services, also very true about jobs, right? So jobs right now is one of the things we're very interested in. How do we help people find jobs?
1: So anyone who follows you on Twitter, and in case you don't, you probably should, um, anyone who follows you on Twitter knows you're pretty critical of all the, the fintech or the hype around fintech startups in Europe as well. But I don't think you've ever been quoted in an interview. From that. Well, what are your thoughts on this whole
2: fintech phenomenon? Well, I love fintech in general, right? I just don't think that we as investors have funded sufficiently the right companies. We funded subsets of, of the industry and that's creating great small niches, but not overall companies. And I just don't believe that in the current crop of fintech companies, we have any disrupting businesses out there. They're great businesses, but they're never going to be world beaters.
1: That's a pretty controversial statement for but I don't think there's any investor in Europe that's not looking at fintech right now. So are you, can you confidently say that mangrove and lover
2: fund the financial services startup? No, absolutely not. We keep looking. You know, we're looking every day and I wish we could find the right one that would meet the criteria and that says, I want to be a world beater. To be a world beater, you have to either have a great product or a fundamentally different business model. And until we find somebody who is prepared to do one or the other or the combination, sadly, we won't be financing that.
1: Very interesting. So when you look at Europe, obviously it's changed quite a bit the last few years as well. What do you think is needed to take... European entrepreneurs and innovation
2: to the next level? More cheerleading, right? I think we need more venture capitalists who fund dreams that that these founders have. We should never forget, as investors, we're along for the ride. The real stars are the founders, and they need cheerleading. They, of course, need capital as well. But they, more than anything, need the self-belief that they can build it here in Europe. And we're seeing more and more every year great examples that says, build it here in Europe, don't leave. Right. You mentioned capital. Um, obviously,
1: you're an early stage investor. That means you're in a space where a lot of new funds are coming up. There's a lot of capital available. It's almost a saturation of early stage, I would argue. The funding gap seems to be more on later stage, series B and up. So does that mean more competition for you? Does it make it harder for you to do your work?
2: Or? Yeah, competition is always going to be there. And it's true that there's more today. Uh, we just hope that uh, what we've done in the past gives us the credibility to illustrate great entrepreneurs that we're the right partners for them.
1: So what are some markets in Europe that you're looking at now that seem to be flying
2: under the radar with your you know, fellow investors? Flying under the radar, I would say that Barcelona is a place where I think there's some interesting stuff happening. And that's really coming out of the whole Wallapop experience, right? which is the mobile classified space. I believe there's a center of competence that's beginning to be built there around companies. I'm not an investor in Wallapop, um, but, but frankly, I wish I were. Anything else outside of Barcelona? No, I can't think of any right now.
1: Very interesting. Well, Mark, thanks for your time, and keep on tweeting about fintech. All right,
2: great. Thank you.
0: And finally, Google and EU antitrust lawsuits.
1: Yes, another one.
0: Yeah, I think The Atlantic said it best when they called it Google's EU problem. It feels literally like a never-ending saga. This past week, the EU hit Google with a new investigation. So I actually thought this was the EU's third antitrust case against Google. You actually corrected me and told me it's the fourth. That's just insane. This time with regards to its advertising business. So I guess everybody knows that's where Google makes most of its revenue. The European Commissioner for Competition, Margaret Vestager, I hope I pronounced her name correctly, announced the new charge last Thursday in a press conference. She says that Google has limited the ability of competitors to place ads on third-party websites and may therefore be breaking EU law. She did, however, mention that Google has since changed its behavior and is allowing third-party sites more freedom to display ads from competitors.
1: Yeah, so The interesting part of this is, of course, what you already mentioned, is that for the first time the EU is really going after Google's main cash cow here, and that's advertising. Um, I think 90% of Google's revenue still comes from uh, online advertising products, so so this seems like a really big deal. Now, if you dive into the details of the antitrust case that they're building, um, it's actually a relatively small slice of the ad products that they sell. Um, so it's not going after the the main cash cow in online advertising Google has, which is advertising on their own websites and search engines. Um, so that's something that's very, very important to note. Uh, the EU is actually going after third-party websites that run a search box that automatically displays uh, google ads when you search for something on a on another website which by the way is a product that google has repeatedly said that they're actually referred to as a legacy product internally and that they're actually thinking of you know not focusing as much on as uh, as it, they have in previous years uh, but still it's interesting that the eu is going after this after android and and google's uh, shopping uh, comparison shopping product so for Google, that means, you know, years of additional litigation or a settlement, uh, which in, in both cases isn't, re- isn't really good news. I mean, either they, they take this to, to the extreme and they end up getting fined and that might be 10% of their revenue which is a really huge deal that billions and billions of dollars or they do a settlement which won't be a lot less um, and it's you know it remains to be seen if they they seek a settlement with the eu how good a deal that they can actually negotiate so i think this is a really interesting uh, new development. Um, i'm not really surprised that there is a new antitrust case um, i'm a bit surprised that they're going after the online advertising products this time you know we'll have to wait and see how this develops google has already commented that it you know, it doesn't really have anything to say about the case until they um, read the details and that they really get, you know, sort of the, the nitty gritty of the case that the EU is building here and that they're going to do a formal comment on this uh, in a few weeks. So I guess we'll have to wait and see what their um, point of view is. But for now, you know, really interesting that the EU is finally, or at least uh, for the first time, building a case for, for online advertising products that Google has. And, you know, Google hasn't had it easy in, the, in Europe Um, when it comes to regulatory frameworks um, and and privacy. So it doesn't seem to get any easier for them over time.
0: Yeah, I hope for them that this will be the last one, but somehow I just feel like the ball keeps rolling.
1: Yeah, I expect it to. All right, so that's it for this week. Thank you very much for tuning in to the TechU podcast. You can subscribe to us on iTunes and SoundCloud. Um, You can follow Roxanne on Twitter. It's at RoxanneVarza. You can follow me at Robin Waters. And of course, you can follow TechU on Twitter as well. It's tech underscore EU. So yeah, thanks for tuning in and hope uh, you listen again next week. Thank you. Bye, Roxanne. Thanks, Robin.